Hello Captains and welcome back to Rank Amateur. Today in Rank Amateur we will be going over the premium German battleship tier 7 premium German battleship for that matter, Scharnhorst. So now Scharnhorst is one of the oldest German battleships, I, I think it, it might be the oldest German battleship in the game. Uh, it's been in the game for an incredibly long time and it's still incredibly popular to this day. Uh, and there's there's pretty good reasons for that, mostly uh, stemming from its uniqueness and how it really hasn't been replaced at all. And this is from a uh, listener request. I did also get a listener request for uh, the Admiral Hipper. Um, that is uh, probably going to be the next one as I still go uh, through building up ships to, to do because I will be going on Christmas break soon, so I will have tons of time to play World of Warships and get some more uh, playtesting and things like that done. So, uh, yeah, we will be going over this ship and uh, probably Admiral Hipper next week. And uh, this week we're not going to be going over any World of Warships news, because there really isn't any uh, in looking through since I last uploaded, since they did the, uh, since they haven't really done any new updates since, uh, what is it, uh, the 6th of November with 12.10. So 12.11 should be coming out, uh, probably early December, first week of December, something like that. Um, yeah, the only new thing I guess that we can go over is this Letters to Santa contest that they have. Um, yeah. So, basically, you're supposed to write a letter to Santa, more or less, and just kind of trying to convince World of Warships why you should have a certain ship, and uh, then you submit it to them, and 21 people on each server? Yeah, 21. the 21 most convincing writers from each server will have their wishes granted. I believe there's going to be a great deal of random selection in this, given the thousands upon thousands of letters they receive and the fact that they're probably not going to read any of them. Um, but yeah, so basically, you write this letter to Santa, you download the template, and then you just uh, you ask for any one of the ships from a following list that they have, and it's uh, basically all the premium ships, um, and they will grant it to you. And like I said, I believe it's mostly going to be random selection because they have like four lines to explain why you want it. And I don't think there's anything anyone can do in four lines to, uh, you know, convince World of Warships from uh, giving them a ship versus anyone else. But yeah, I mean, it's a cool event, you know, they're just giving away ships. Um, yeah, so I guess that's cool. You can fill it out. They're due by December 18th at 4 a.m. Pacific time, U.S. Pacific time, so that's 6 a.m. U.S. Central time, and if it's your time zone, I'm, I guess you can figure it out based on that. All right, so that's it for World of Warships news today. Uh, we're going to go over the Stronghearts, um, a naval history first, and then we'll go over its World of Warships playstyle. Like I said, I don't actually 
have this ship in my port. I do have a bunch of other German ships, though, and I do have a friend who I talk to all the time who has this ship as well, and I've played against and with the Scharnhorst in my division, and uh, I've actually dueled against my friend in it as well. So I do believe I have a pretty good grasp on what you're supposed to do with the Scharnhorst. And so that's why this is going to be more of a how you play against the Scharnhorst versus... Um, or Charnhorst, however you prefer to pronounce it, um, than necessarily how to play it, but I will definitely give some tips on how to play it as well. Um, so she is named after Gerhard Johann von Scharnhorst, who is a Prussian general in the very early 1800s. Uh, she was laid down on the 15th of June, 1935, launched in the October, on October the 3rd, uh, 1936, and commissioned on the 7th of January, 1939, just before the uh, outbreak of World War II. She has an interesting motto, too. Usually uh, German ships didn't have mottos, or at least ones that were recorded. And, uh, uh, so this is Schornhorst Ever Onward, and I'm not going to say the German pronunciation of that because I don't know how to say it. Uh, so she was a Sean Horse class battleship, lead ship of her class of two ships, which consisted of her and Gneisenau. Um, note, in actual service, Gneisenau was, had the same turret configuration as the Sean Horse. It was only after she was damaged uh, by a bombing raid while in uh, dry dock that they considered switching her over to the six 15-inch guns. Uh, that work was never completed because of the lack of materials present and the fact that the German Navy wasn't exactly that useful in World War II, uh, save for the U-boats. Uh, um, so Hitler canceled that. But uh, she displaced a standard 32,100 long tons. Uh, at standard displacement and at full load, it was 38,100 long tons. She was 234.9 or 770 feet 8 inches long. She had a beam of 30 meters or 98 feet 5 inches, which is actually really, really narrow for a ship her length. Uh, she had a draft of 9.9 .9 meters or 32 feet 6 inches, which is typical for a fast ba battleship is a very deep draft. She had installed power of 159,551 shaft horsepower. She was uh, powered by three uh, Brown, Bavaria, and company geared steam turbines. She could reach a speed of 31 knots and had a range of 7,100 nautical miles uh, at, a range, or at a speed of 19 knots. Uh, that's 13,100 kilometers. She had a complement of 56 officers and 1,613 enlisted uh, personnel. Uh, this, I believe, is non-wartime uh, configuration because she, when she was sunk, she was carrying out 1,968 uh, crew members. She was armed with nine 28 centimeter, uh, 54.5 caliber SKC slash 34, uh, actually 34 caliber rifles. She carried 12 uh, 150 millimeter, 55 caliber. Um, actually, no, it's, it's, the previous guns were an SKC slash 34. They were 54.5 calibers, not 34 calibers. And the next guns are 15, uh, 15 centimeters, so 150 uh, millimeters. I think it was actually 155 millimeters, uh, 55 caliber SKC slash 28 guns, and she carried. 14 105 millimeter uh, SKC slash 33 guns, uh, 16 37 millimeter SKC C slash 30 guns. Well, I cannot speak. Yeah, so those would have been anti-aircraft guns primarily. Uh, 10 20 centimeter, two, 20 centimeter, uh, 20 millimeter C slash 30 or C slash 38 anti-aircraft guns, and six 533 millimeter torpedo tubes uh, mounted in one tur one turret of three tubes each on either side. Uh, she had a 
decently significant amount of armor, uh, and this was because there was a decent amount of weight save with the with the guns uh, being smaller. Uh, she had carried a belt of 350 millimeters armor. Her deck was, was armored with 30 to 105 millimeter uh, plating. Uh, turrets had 200 to 360 millimeter plating on them, and the conning tower 350 millimeters of plating on it as well. She carried one catapult in the center of the ship, and she could carry up to three Arado Air 190 or no Arado AR 196A float planes. Um, so Shornhorse is kind of interesting. Uh, basically, there was a lot of problems with German gun development in general, especially naval guns. They were kind of crap. Uh, they were really overcomplicated. I mean, they were accurate. Don't get me wrong. Their range finding was excellent, and their control systems were were as good. Um, but the guns themselves weren't actually that great. They never really made, figured out how to make a large gun that was efficient. And the reason why is because they hadn't really figured out the fifth turn breech lock. And so if you see a video of a British gun loading, especially one of those really large, like 15-inch or... I think, yeah, British only had 15-inch guns. No, they had a 16-inch on the Nelson class. But, yeah, so basically you will see the breech door close, and it's obviously this huge door that weighs like a ton. And so it closes and then turns a fifth of a turn, and that locks and seals it. Right, so then the gun can fire, and obviously it recoils and everything, and then it turns the fifth turn back and opens up and allows a more another shell and powder charges and stuff to go in. The Germans hadn't actually figured that out. That was a, apparently a pretty well kept British secret. So the, what the Germans did is that they would have a plug essentially that would go in the back of the of the round. So like you'd have your round, your powder charges, and then a plug that goes into the gun. And then when there, this provides the seal, so the breech doesn't actually like turn to seal. It doesn't like screw shut. Essentially, it just kind of like folds shut. Um, and, and so that would seal it, so the gun would fire, and then that charge would have to that that seal would have to be removed and disposed of, and then the next round could go in. So this resulted in some really really overcomplicated loading mechanisms, as is typical with most German engineering at that time. And so you'll notice that the Scharnhorst turrets are, like, absurdly wide. Uh, especially if you look at, like, a line diagram. They're only 11-inch guns, but they have turrets that are, like, the size of the British 14-inch ones. And that's because they had to, like, tilt this mechanism on its side and, like, shoehorn it into the into the turret. So they don't actually... The reason why German... The, the Bismarck could only fit two 15-inch guns and a turret as, as wide as the Bismarck could is because they had that huge mechanism in there. So they... They tried to fit a 15-inch uh, gun in the center there. The British would have been able to with their uh, loading mechanisms, how small they were. Uh, but the Germans, they just couldn't get it to fit. So this got, caused a whole bunch of reliability issues and things like that. Like I said, and overcomplicated uh, me mechanisms being present to remove this uh, plug in the back. All because they couldn't figure out that if you just turn the breech, uh, what's it? Uh, fifth of a turn, then you would be able to seal it without having a plug, and then you could get rid of that overcomplicated part of um, loading process. And, and like I said, this explanation is a little bit oversimplified, but that's more or less what happened. So if you see like the Pommern or the Grosse-Kerferist in-game, like those turrets wouldn't be able to work. Like the Germans didn't know how to build a turret that big. So because you couldn't, if you were to build a turret that large with guns that large, and the German way of doing it, the turrets would be so wide they wouldn't really be able to fit on the ship as well as they do in game. Like, they would be absurdly large. 
And so the Germans just didn't think that was efficient. So that's why they went with the 283 millimeter guns because they could get those mechanisms to fit in kind of a compact uh, space and still have like maneuvering room around the ship and stuff. So that's why the turrets are super weird. That's why the gun size is super weird on the um, Germans uh, ships and things like that. It's yeah, and they also then had kind of a standard turret because the uh, Graf Spe, um, actually was it the Deutschland class cruisers had that uh, same turret. The Scharnhorsken Nies now had that same turret, so maintenance was a little bit easier because they had common parts and you had a decent proportion of your fleet that was equipped with this gun. Um, it, besides like the uh, Hipper class and the Bismarck class, there wasn't really any other German capital ships that didn't have this as their primary weapon. So, um, I mean, there was a few light cruisers there, here and there, that uh, were different. But basically, you had one standard main gun for a bunch of your ships, which was convenient for them. So, uh, let's get into the actual service history of the Scharnhorst. And I'm going to go kind of skip over the pre-war, because she only existed for a year pre-war. And uh, it was not super interesting, so we'll just kind of uh, gloss over that, and then we'll get into the actual conflict. Although the interesting things that happened pre-war, and it, the reason why I said I was going to kind of gloss over is because she spent most of pre-war in dry dock. But uh, they sent her out for the, on the 9th of January for sea trials, and it was revealed that their current bow configuration basically just dove into every wave and uh, doused the forward turret in water, which seriously damaged the electrical systems in that turret, uh, which wasn't good because if that happened in a day, imagine what would happen in a long deployment. Uh, and then they also had issues with the funnel cap and the uh, aircraft hangar not being large enough and the main mast being kind of an awkward position. So they had to fix all those things and they extensively reconstructed the uh, bow into what we call the Atlantic bow, which is that iconic German bow that we see where it kind of like dips or like essentially it's kind of like a ski jump except it's the bow. So it just... Uh, it curves upward as it goes forward, and that knocks down the seas so it doesn't uh, the seas don't crash over the bow as much. Uh, they also moved the mainmast to further back. They added a larger aircraft hangar, and they um yeah i think that's about it yeah and they also repaired the forward turret because it was damaged uh the first operation was on the 21st of november 1939 uh this first time that the uh Scharnhorst was actually operational and she went out with her sister ship Gnines now to patrol the area between iceland and the faroe islands the intent of the operation was to draw out british units and ease the pressure on the heavy cruiser admiral graf Spee, which was being um um chased to um, the end of the world by the British uh, because they were not happy about the Battle of the River Plate. So, uh, actually, the, was it? Um, not the Battle of the River Plate. That was the battle where it was destroyed. Uh, yeah, it skirmished with the Exeter and the Ajax and Achilles, so they were intent on pursuing it until it was a artificial reef. So they were trying to ease the pressure off of this. So they uh, left William Shaven... Um, or excuse me, Williamshaven, uh, in company of the light cruisers Conlin and Leipzig, three destroyers, and they managed to intercept the British armed merchant cruiser uh, Royal Pindy, I think is how you pronounce that, on the morning of the 23rd of November 1939. At, or actually, uh, no, it wasn't the morning, excuse me, it was the afternoon. Uh, at 16.07 hours, which is uh, 4 p.m. for those of you not necessarily familiar with military time, uh, lookouts board the short horse spotted the vessel, and less than an hour later, they closed to within range. They opened fire, and three minutes later, a salvo of the 280 mil 
283 millimeter guns hit the bridge, killing the captain. Uh, this hit the uh, Rawalpindi's bridge, killing the captain. The majority of the officers present on the board. Uh, during the brief engagement, Rawalpindi managed to score a hit on Shoran Horse, which caused minor splinter damage. Uh, by 1716 hours, she was burning badly in the process of sinking. And Admiral uh, Wilhelm uh, Marschall aboard, aboard the Gneisenau, now. I always forget that the G is not silent, ordered Charn Horse to pick up survivors. These rescue operations were interrupted by the appearance of the cruiser Newcastle. The German force quickly fled north before using inclement weather to make a dash south into, through the North Sea. Four Allied capital ships, the British Hood, Nelson Rodney, and the British Dunkirk followed in pursuit. Or the, the excuse me, the French Dunkirk followed in pursuit. Germans reached Williamshaven on the 27th of November, and both battleships incurred significant damage from heavy seas and winds. Uh, Schornhorst was repaired in uh, Williamshaven while in dry dock. Her boilers were also overhauled. So it, there's German ships tend to be over, more overcomplicated than uh, is good for them, and this makes them sort of fragile, kind of. They uh, had a lot of issues with weather and other things that were not related to combat, impacting their engineering. And this applied to like uh, German tanks and things like that. Uh, Russian tanks could be re uh, replaced. Uh, most parts on the Russian tanks could be replaced with nothing more than a socket wrench um, or, or equivalent. And uh, you needed like a actual bachelor's degree in engineering to replace the tracks on a Panzer IV. So yeah. It, it, Difference in engineering style. They worked very well when they were working, but they don't work very well when they're not working. Versus Russian things don't work very well to begin with, but they kind of, uh, they don't, they work well when they're not working, if that makes sense. I remember, um, there was a, uh, Mighty Jingles, which is a, uh, World of Warships YouTuber, I'm sure you all know of him, was telling a story about how he, uh, had a, friend who had a russian friend and when this uh friend was staying in russia he asked for a he asked his russian friend what a reliable washing machine would be and so uh his russian friend recommended him one and he purchased it and not two weeks later did that one reliable washing machine break down and then he went to his friend and was like what the heck you told me it was reliable why is it broken down in the first two weeks he's like ah my friend in russia we don't think that reliable is when something lasts a long time we think it's when it's easy to fix. <laughs> and sure enough, 15 minutes of uh, maintenance later, the washing machine was up and running again, only to break down two weeks later, but it was really simple to fix every time. Now, uh, the our definition of reliable is uh, that it works and you don't need to fix it. Their definition is that when it breaks, it's easy to fix. And there's all sorts of different stories they have about Russian engineering and, and just dumb things that they've done. But uh, that's a bit of a tangent. We'll get back into the actual um, Shorenhorst. So, um, yeah, basically everyone's chasing them. They finally made it back to port, and they were damaged by wind. And so now their boilers are being overhauled, and they are um, uh, repairing wind damage. And following completion of repairs, Shorenhorst went to the Baltic Sea for gunnery training. Heavy ice in the Baltic kept the ship there until February 1940, when she could return to Williamshaven, arriving on the 5th of February. And between the 18th of February and the 20th of February, she participated in Operation Nordmark, which is a brief sortie into the uh, as far north as the Shetland Islands. And Operation Nordmark was the uh, sortie by a German flotilla of two battleships, the Schornhorst and Gneisenau, and heavy cruiser against British mer merchant shipping between Norway and Shetland. Um, yeah, basically just 
disrupting Arctic shipping as usual for them. The next thing that the Shore and Horse participated in was the uh, operation, which was the invasion of Denmark and Norway. Shore and Horse again, Eisenhower were the covering force on the assaults on Narvik and Trondheim. Uh, two ships left Williamshaven on the morning of the 7th of April, 1940, under the command of Vice Admiral Günther Lutjens. They were joined by the Trondheim Invasion Force, which consisted of the heavy cruiser Admiral Hipper and four additional destroyers, and by the invasion force that was designated to attack Narvik, consisting of an additional 10 destroyers. Between 1425 hours and 1448 uh, hours on the 7th of April, the ships were unsuccessfully attacked uh, by 12 bombers. And by that evening, the weather had deteriorated significantly, and several destroyers were not able to keep up the 27 knot speed designated for the fleet. Uh, and they remained behind the main force. Heavy winds caused significant structural damage uh, that e evening and partially contaminated uh, par a portion of Scharnhorst's fuel stores with water. On the 8th of April at 0915 hours, one of the trailing destroyers, Bern von Arnim, yeah, Arnim, uh, signaled a fight with the British destroyer, and Gunther Luchens ordered Admiral Hipper to turn around and investigate. The German cruiser found a British destroyer, HMS Glowworm, and hit her with accurate artillery fire, and before the Glowworm sank, she attempted to ram and damage the Admiral Hipper and sent out a warning message to the British fleet. Shortly after the fight with Glowworm, Admiral Hipper and her four destroyers set course for Trondheim, and at 2200 hours, the ten destroyers left for Narvik, whilst, while the Scharnhorst and Nisnow took position uh, to cover both landings. So yeah, that was the last stand of the Glowworm, and it made the British fleet aware that the... Uh, the Germans were up to something. On the 9th of April, two ships uh, encountered British battlecruiser HMS Renown. Gneisenau's SeaTact uh, radar picked up the contact at 0430 hours. It prompted the crews of both vessels to go to combat stations. Half an hour later, Schoenhorst's navigator spotted gun flashes from Renown firing at Gneisenau, and the Germans returned fire three minutes later. Gneisenau was hit twice in the opening portion of the engagement uh, and actually had her rear gun turret disabled by a shell. Schrottenhorst's radar malfunctioned as typical of German technology, which prevented her from able, being able to fire effectively and engage the renowned during the battle. At 0518 hours, the British battle cruiser shifted fire to Scharnhorst. This is really not good because you have a target that has guided uh, radar-guided shells, or not radar-guided shells, but uh, radar targeting systems, and your radar targeting system is not working, and it's uh, it's dark, and it's rainy, and it's really cold, and it's just it's not a great condition for anyone. Uh, so shifted to Scharnhorst, and... Uh, was this essentially forced Scharnhorst to maneuver in an adverse way to avoid the falling shells. Uh, by 0715 hours, Scharnhorst and Eisenhower had used their superior speed to escape from the pursuing Renown, because Renown was definitely not as fast as the Scharnhorst and Eisenhower. I forget the top speed of Renown. Renown had a top speed of uh, 32 knots. Interesting. Uh, that's right, yeah, the adverse weather was affecting uh, Renown's ability to maintain her speed, so uh, the German battleships Schardenhorst and Eisenhower were able to escape. Heavy seas and high speed, which the pair of battleships escaped, caused them to leave, ship large amounts of water to the fort turret. Schardenhorst's forward turret was put out of action by severe flooding and water damage. Mechanical problems with their starboard turbines developed after running at full speed forced the sp ships to reduce speed to 25 knots, and this was dangerous because it could potentially allow Renown to catch up. Sarnhorst and Eisenhower reached a point uh, northwest of Luften, Norway, by uh, 
noon on the 9th of April, and the two ships then turned west for 24 hours while temporary repairs were effected. After a day of steaming west, the ships then turned south. And uh, they began broadcasting radio messages that would betray the position of the ships to the British. A Arado 196 float plane was then launched by Scharnhorst on the 10th of April at noon with the instruction to fly the direction of Norway and signal there the intentions of Lutherans to break through to Germany on the 9th of the 11th of April. And this uh, Arata 196 was essentially just to signal back to the fleet that it was uh, that the, the intentions of the uh, Schornhorst and Eisenau and eventually Admiral Hipper, which later joined the uh, two battleships, although without its destroyer complement, because the destroyer complement had remained back in Trondheim because they uh, had not an, did not have the fuel to make it across uh, the Baltic Sea, so. Um, during this time, this uh, period where they were breaking through to Germany, the Royal Air Force managed to keep tabs on them with their patrol aircraft, spotting them about three times a day. An 82 RAF Bomber Command and 9 RAF Coastal Command aircraft were ordered to attack these ships. However, the German warships were protected by poor weather and uh, were not actually struck or anything like that by the British bombs, although the British lost nine of their bombers to German fighters. So, not a good thing for the British. In June of 1940, the uh, Germans then returned to, or actually the Schornhorst and Eisenhower then returned to Norway, and uh, before doing so, they uh, rendezvoused with a tanker to refuel Admiral Hipper and four destroyers, and then uh, just after refueling the next day, they spotted the British trawler HMT Juniper uh, and sunk it along with the oil tanker Oil Pioneer. Uh, the Germans then launched their 196 float planes to search for more Allied vessels. Uh, Admiral Hipper and the destroyers accompanying the uh, fleets were sent to destroy the or Ornama, which is a 19,500 long-ton passenger ship, while the Atlantis, a hospital ship, was allowed to proceed uh, without being harassed. So, yeah, just <laughs> destroying a civilian passenger ship and leaving a... I guess they left a hospital ship, but... um. Yeah, I don't know about going after a passenger ship. I guess it could have been a troop transport, but, uh, yeah, that... I don't know, that's questionable. Uh, yeah. Uh, then Lead Admiral detached Admiral Hipper into four destroyers to refuel in Trondheim and would steam to the Hartstead area with his two battleships. At 17.45 hours the same day, a German battleship spotted the aircraft carrier Glor HMS Glorious and its two escorting destroyers, HMS Ardent and HMS Acasta, at a range of 40... Thousand meters, so 40 kilometers, about 44,000 yards, and that's about 25 miles. At 18.32, Schornhorst, as the closer ship, began to open fire uh, with her main armament at Glorious, and this was at a range of 26,000 meters, 26, which is 26,000 kilometers, 28,000 yards. Uh, it equates about 16 miles for my fellow Americans. Uh, six minutes after opening fire, Schornhorst scored a hit at a range of 25,600 meters, and uh, this is, I believe, one of the longest-range artillery hits, uh, shots that has ever actually been recorded with a traditional shell. Um, yeah, so 25 kilometers, 25.6 kilometers, which is about 15.9 miles, which is pretty insane. A shell struck the carrier's upper hangar and started a large fire, and less than 10 minutes later, a shell from Gnaiz now struck the bridge and killed Glorious as captain. Uh, yeah. So to say they were accurate is pretty pretty much an understatement. Two destroyers attempted to cover Glorious with smoke screens, but the German battleships could track the carrier uh, with their radar because uh, smoke that could deflect radar uh, 
signals hadn't really been invented yet. So yeah, they tracked the carrier with the radar, and by 1826, the range had fallen to about 24,100 meters, and Schornhorsing and Eyes now were firing full salvos at the carrier instead of just exploratory salvos uh, with just single guns. After approximately an hour shooting, the German battleship sent Glorious uh, straight to the bottom to become an artificial reef. And they also sank the two destroyers. As the Casta sank one of four torpedoes, she had fire hit Scharnhorst at 19.39 hours. The Casta also hit Scharnhorst forward, super-firing turret with her 4.7-inch QF guns. That did negligible damage, though, as it uh, didn't really penetrate the uh, thick armor that was present on the turret. The torpedo hit caused serious damage. It tore, it tore a hole 14 by 6 meters wide and allowed 2,500 tons of water into the ship. The rear turret was disabled and 48 men were killed by this action. Uh, and the flooding caused a 5 degree list um, and it increased the stern, it made the stern sit down on the water by almost a meter and it forced Scharnhorst to reduce speed to just 20 knots, uh, which is at this, for this time period, very slow. Uh, the ship's machinery was also significantly damaged by the flooding and the starboard propeller shaft was destroyed in the blast. So, yeah, um, one torpedo basically took out Scharnhorst. If damage control teams wouldn't have gotten the flooding under control, it would definitely would have sank her. So, yeah, um, I guess German torpedo damage reduction uh, wasn't really uh, good in real life either. And the damage was severe enough to, support, to force Scharnhorst to put into Trondheim for temporary repairs, and she re uh, reached the port on the afternoon on the 9th of June. Uh, while she was repairing in, uh, was it, uh, Trondheim, she was continually harassed by the Royal Navy and Royal Air Force. Um, the Royal Navy actually sent the Ark Royal and the Rodney after it, um, however, none of the, uh, bombs that were ever launched at it, uh, I, they, they all either missed or failed to detonate. Um, and then she sailed to another uh, city in Norway uh, that was closer to Germany. Originally, she was planning on going straight back to Germany, but the uh, Germans did intercept Royal Navy radio traffic to, inter to indicate that the fleet was really close. Uh, came within 35 nautical miles of the Schornhorst position when she uh, turned into Stavanger's port, which is that town she went to. Uh, next day, she left for uh, Kiel, and repairs were carried out, lasting some six months. And following completion of the repairs, she took part in Operation Berlin. And this was literally an operation that was just uh, commerce raiding in the North Atlantic. So it didn't start out very well. Uh, the Gneisenau was damaged in uh, severe storms, which forced both ships to go back to port for a little bit to repair the Gneisenau. Uh, however, on the 6th of February uh, 1941, uh, the two ships did uh, manage to complete refueling from a tanker, and then they also spotted the convoy HX-106. However, this was escorted by the uh, capital ship HMS Ramleys, which was a Queen Elizabeth-class battleship, and Lucian's orders explicitly prohibited him from engaging Allied capital ships. They wanted to uh, not pick a fair fight, essentially. Uh, so they uh, called off the attack. And earlier, this this was kind of to be expected, because earlier the um, fact that the Shorenhorse and Eisenhower were at sea was determined by British intelligence services, and so the heavy, fleets, uh, heavy elements of the British home fleet were sent to to move around and try and find these two ships. Um, so this forced Luchens to try to move to a new area in hopes that he would find some uh, convoys that were not protected by uh, capital ships. They did manage to find a convoy that was empty. Uh, it dispersed immediately on the side of uh, the battleships, and it 
actually only managed to sink one of the ships, which is a 6,000-ton tanker, Lustrious. Uh, then Lujinus decided to move to another area, uh, as the surviving members of the dispersed convoy had sent distress signals, which uh, generally tended to attract British capital ships, which is not something that they wanted to. Uh, two ships encountered the convoy SL-67, which was escorted by the battleship Malaya, which was another Queen Elizabeth-class battleship. Luchins again called off the attack, but he did shadow the convoy and directed U-boats to its position. Uh, the U-boats did sink 28,000 tons of shipping on the, 9th of 8, uh, on the night between 8th and 9th of March as a result of Luchins' direct, uh, direction, and uh, Molia turned on the two battleships and closed to about 24,000 meters, which was well within the range of the Germans' guns, but Luchins refused to be drawn into an engagement because he knew that would violate his orders, and uh, if anything bad happened, it would be him that was on the hook. And he also didn't want to risk, uh, you know, engaging with any British ships that he might not have known were there or not. Uh, so he decided to call them off. Uh, they turned towards the Mid-Atlantic, and they sank the Greek cargo ship Marathon. Two ships then refueled, uh, refueled from the tankers Ukermark and Ermland on the 12th of March. So, on the 15th of March, the two battleships with the two tankers and company encountered another dispersed convoy in the Mid-Atlantic. The Scharnhorst sank two ships, and several days after this, the main convoy was actually spotted, and Scharnhorst sank another seven ships, which totaled more than 27,000 tons of shipping. Uh, one of the surviving ships, however, uh, managed to radio the location of the German battleships with some of the powerful battleships Rodney and its uh, smaller accomplice, King George V, uh, which was not something that the uh, German essentially the Germans didn't want no smoke, so they <laughs> they escaped in a squall, and uh, the constant intervention by British forces convinced Luchens that chances of further success in this sortie was small, and they returned to uh, Brest, France. Uh, for repairs, and uh, this was because the Scharnhorst had issues with its superheated tubes in the boilers, and it was kind of making the Germans not want to live anymore, so they were uh, put into Brest for repairs. This, these repairs, unfortunately, lasted until July, which made the ship unavailable during Operation Rudenberg, which was the sole sortie by the German battleship Bismarck in May of 1941. So, after the... Um, well, after the uh, battleships returned to Brest, it was determined that by the Allies, especially Winston Churchill was a big advocate of this, that, hey, maybe instead of bombing German industry, we should bomb the things that are preventing us from getting our supplies, and then uh, then we'll turn back to German industry. So basically, they took a look at a map of France where, like, there's a U-boat port, there's a U-boat port, there's a U-boat port, circle those, go after those. And then um, we'll just we'll scout for U-boats, and when we see one, we'll take it out. And then um, they also had some other major ports they wanted to take out, and they're like, all right, we're going to have this plan. And then they found that Schornhorsk and Eisenau had turned to Brest, and they're like, oh, yeah, well, we'll take that one out too. And they just began harassing them, and it was really annoying for the, uh, the Germans. They installed smoke, uh, smoke generators into the port of uh, France, or Brest, France, and... Um, it worked pretty well for a little while, but eventually winds shifted and the smoke screens uh, didn't work as well one day. So then the Gneisenau had. Gneisenau. I always say that G silent. Gneisenau uh, had a bomb land close to 
land close to it, so it was forced out into the harbor from Dry Dock. And in the harbor, it was torpedoed, and then it came back into Dry Dock. Prinzeugen, which was also in the harbor, was seriously damaged by a bomb. And uh, this only lasted a couple of days, but they had severely damaged most of the ships that were in the harbor. And uh, so the bomber ca uh, command actually halted this uh, because they felt that their job was done, and then they resumed the campaign against German industry. Uh, after the repairs were completed, uh, Scharnhorst went to La Palace for trials on the 21st of July and easily steamed up the 30 knots. She did not return to Brest to avoid the undesirable concentration of heavy units in one port. Essentially, they re learned their lesson from the British bombing of the port and decided that maybe we shouldn't keep all of our stuff in one place. Uh, so yeah. However, the Sean Horse was uh, quickly, uh, its position was quickly nailed down by the uh, British and it was uh, bombed extensively. It was hit many times by many different types of bombs, different types of bombers, and uh, was forced to put it back into Brest, France for repairs. And uh, then the German, or the British decided that, you know, we're going to start bombing Brest again. And so they... <laughs> They damaged the Shorenhorsk, now and Prinzeugen, all in those ports. The Brit and so this meant that, effectively, all the German capital ships were out of service. The uh, Shorenhorst uh, was seriously damaged from bombing and torpedoing. Uh, the Gneisenau and Prinzeugen were still being repaired. The Bismarck had been sunk on the 27th of May. And uh, Tirpitz was still working up and not ready for service. Lutzo had been seriously damaged by a torpedo on the 13th of June, 1941. Admiral Scheer and Admiral Hipper were in dockyards for maintenance. Yeah. So there was, and obviously the German capital ship, uh, their aircraft carrier, the Graf Zeppelin, was, um, well, yeah, was not nowhere close to being ready for service. So they essentially were out and um, so eventually this bombing paused again and uh, until November uh, when the bomber command realized that his campaign against German industry was kind of ineffective because of the high rate of losses and lack of general results. So they uh, began attacking ships in Brest again and uh, 36 attacks were mounted between the August and February and most of these were surprise attacks by small groups of aircraft who tried to arrive before the smoke screens in the harbor could be deployed. And uh, they were pretty pretty successful with this, and then they figured out that you could also just drop bombs through the smoke screen as well. And um, essentially, they, they scored some decent hits, uh, uh, especially on the Gneisenau, but that was kind of it. The next operation that the Scharnhorst uh, participated in was Operation Cerebrius, Cerebrius? Yeah. Uh, which was on the 12th of January, 1942. Um, actually, no, excuse me, it was decided to do this on the 12th of January 1942, it was completed on the 11th of February. Essentially, the goal was just to dash up the channel, the English Channel, hugging the French coast and go back to Germany for, you know, better repairs and to disperse the German fleet, essentially. Um, and this was, uh, consisted of Short Horse, Neisnow, and, uh, Prince Eugen. And they, uh, essentially just went as fast as they could up the, uh, French coast with a covering of destroyers and torpedo boats. And, um, yeah, and so they just to tried to avoid the, the British uh, radar network, and they hoped that they were close enough to the, um, to the shore that the British just picked up the uh, German ships as essentially just part of the shoreline. They couldn't distinguish the, sh the shoreline from the uh, German ships, and it actually largely worked. Uh, then German aircraft were dispatched to launch chaff, which would disrupt the British radar, uh, which actually worked. The uh, British were eventually aware of this movement, and they did launch several attacks. Um, 
all of which were unsuccessful. However, the uh, airdropped mines were not. The Schornhorst hit two of them, and it basically disabled every system on the ship. Uh, one of them actually tore a huge hole in the ship and managed to knock out power for 20 minutes. Knocked out, and So essentially, all power was knocked out for 20 minutes. Uh, she was only capable of running on one propeller shaft. Eventually, there was a second shaft that was restarted. Uh, all three of her main battery turrets were jammed. Several of her 155mm turrets were jammed. Uh, she had serious electrical problems. Her circuit breakers were out of action for a while. And, uh, yeah, so pretty much, uh, yeah. Not, uh, not great. So she was eventually redeployed to, um, Norway and exercised with several U-boats and kind of didn't really do anything interesting for a little while until the Battle of the North Cape. So, uh, the military situation in the German army and Eastern Front was rapidly deteriorating. It became increasingly important to interrupt the flow of supplies from Western allies to the Soviet Union's in hopes of starving the Soviet war machine, which was, um, exponentially growing in power. By December 1943, the German army had been forced into basically a continuous retreat from the Soviet Union. The Luftwaffe had been seriously weakened by four years of war, and increasing allied anti-submarine capabilities were steadily degrading the effectiveness of U-boats. And it was kind of starting, the writing was done on the wall for the Germans, essentially. The only effective weapon of disposal of the Germans in Norway was the Schorenhorst Turpit, and was the Schorenhorst, because the Turpits had been badly damaged, and the four remaining heavy cruisers had been committed to the Baltic. Uh, during conference with Hitler on the 19th of 19th through 20th of December, uh, Grad Admiral Cardinal Karl Dunst decided to deploy the Schorenhorst, the next Allied convoy that presented itself. Um, yeah, so basically they were just gonna hope that they could take out as many as many Allied convoys as possible before they were sunk, more or less. They're just gonna stand in the way as much as they could. Essentially, they ordered the Schorenhorst to be ready at a three-hour notice. Essentially, so they wanted notice, and they wanted the ship out of the port by th in three hours, which was extremely quick for a ship. So essentially, you had to keep like the boilers fired and everything like that. So on December twenty second, um, they spotted a convoy of twenty transports and various reconnaissance techniques determined that they were in fact going to the Soviet Union. Schornhorst and five destroyers left port around nineteen hundred hours and were open sea about four hours later. And they uh, received confirmation from Fleet Command that Scharnhorst was to attack the convoy alone if heavy seas interfered the, with the destroyer's ability to fight. So essentially, they were going to attack it whether they had destroyer, um, whether they had destroyer support or not. Un unbeknownst to the Germans, the British were able to read deciphered Enigma radio transmissions between the Scharnhorst and Fleet Command. And essentially, they were aware of his plan for attack on the convoy and could position their forces according before they even got there. At 0703 hours, Scharnhorst was about 40 nautical miles uh, southwest of Bear Island when she made a turn that put her position to attack the convoy at about 10 a.m. Or 10, was it? It's 10,000 hours, I think? 1,000? I don't know how you would say that. Um, essentially, they, uh, British commanded three cruisers, HMS Norfolk, Belfast, Sheffield, uh, that were escorting the convoy to place themselves between the convoy and Scharnhorst's expected direction of attack. They called in the, the battleship HMS Duke of York along with the cruiser Jamaica and four additional destroyers and moved to position southwest of Scharnhorst to block an attempt a possible attempted escape route. They essentially going to balk in and beat the crap out of the uh, Scharnhorst, which they believed was going to be alone. An hour after making the turn, Bay attempted to deploy his destroyers in a line screening the Scharnhorst, which remained 10 nautical miles 
uh, behind the destroyers. About half an hour later, Scharnhorst loudspeakers called a crew to battle stations in preparation for attack. At 0840 hours, Belfast picked up Scharnhorst on radar. Unaware that they had been detected, the Germans turned off their radar to prevent British from picking up the radar signals because radar travels further forward than it does back to you. So essentially, has, I believe it has about double the range. So you can detect radar from about double the range out that someone can actually detect an echo from the radar, right? Because echo radar has to travel twice as far to get back to you. So its maximum range is only half of its range that you can detect from roughly. Now, that's, that's obviously very rough. There's other nuances that are beyond my depth of knowledge, but that's the basic concept of it. You can detect it further than it's useful. So they turned off the radar to in hopes of preventing that, them from being detected. However, they had already been detected, so this was pointless. Uh, at 0921 hours, Belfast lookout spotted the uh, Scharnhorst at the range of uh, 11 kilometers, and the cruiser opened fire about three minutes later, followed by Norfolk. Two minutes after, Scharnhorst then realized they had been detected and fired a salvo uh, from turret C before turning and increasing speed to disengage from the cruisers. The battleship was hit twice um, by the 203mm shells, and the first failed to explode and caused negligible damage, and the, the second struck the forward rangefinders and destroyed the radar antenna, uh, rendering them mostly blind. The aft radar, which possessed only limited forward arc, was the ship's only remaining radar capacity, and so they were very much blind in most directions. Scharnhorst turned south and attempted to work around the cruisers, but the superior British radar prevented them from successfully carrying out the maneuver. At noon, the Scharnhorst was northeast of the convoy, but the Belfast had actually re-established radar contact. And it took the cruisers 20 minutes to close the range and begin firing. The Shornhorst then detected the cruisers firing upon itself with her aft radar and opened fire in return with her main battery guns before turning away in an attempt to disengage a second time. At 1225, uh, would hit Norfolk twice with uh, 283mm shells. The first shell hit the forward superstructure and disabled the gunnery radar, and the second shell uh, struck the ship's uh, turret X and disabled the turret. Um, actually, it, took the bar it struck the barbette, but it disabled the turret. Scharnhorst turned again at increased speed in hopes of escaping these cruisers and finding the actual convoy. Uh, however, the British Admiral kept his distance to shadow the Scharnhorst with radar while uh, another British Admiral made his way to the scene with uh, the big guns, the Duke of York. Meanwhile, five German destroyers continued searching for the convoy without success. Uh, not realizing that this was actually a screen that they were um, they were engaging and that the convoy was uh, well away from this action. At 13.15 hours, Bay decided to return to base, and at 13.43, he dismissed the destroyers and instructed them to return to port. At 16.17 hours, the Duke of York made radar contact with Scharnhorst, and 30 minutes later, Belfast illuminated the German battleship with star shells, which I think you guys have heard, especially from my Abdicom episode, star shells are just really bright phosphorus-filled shells that they fire behind, uh, purposely long and behind um, enemy ships, and it illuminates them in a silhouette. Uh, of night and remember this is far north at 4 p.m. so it is dark right it is completely dark uh, at 1650 Duke of York opened fire at a range of just 11,000 meters well, 11 kilometers which is rather close range Scharnhorst quickly returned fire five minutes after opening fire one of Duke of York's 14 inch shells struck Scharnhorst uh, around her forward turret the shell jammed the turret's training gears and it put it out of action uh, shell splinters started a fire in the ammunition magazine, which, which quickly forced the Germans to flood the forward magazines to prevent an explosion. And the water was quickly drained from uh, 
turret, uh, Bruno's magazine, and the ship was now fighting with only two-thirds of her uh, main battery. Uh, shortly thereafter, the 14-inch shell struck the ventilation uh, attached to the uh, B turret, which caused the turret to be flooded with, uh, with propellant gases every time the breach is opened. Uh, which was not good for her crew. Uh, the shell hit uh, deck next to turret C and caused some flooding, and shell splinters caused significant casualties to the crew. Uh, at 17.30 hours, shell struck the forward 155mm gun turrets and destroyed both of them. At around 1800 hours, another 14-inch shell struck the ship on the starboard side, passed through a thin upper belt armor, and exploded in the number one boiler room. It caused significant damage to the ship's propulsion system and slowed the ship to just 8 knot speed. Uh, that would be basically um, the writing on the wall. That was more or less the death blow, because now it couldn't escape. Temporary repairs allowed the short horse to return to 22 knots, and she managed to add about 5,000 meters to the distance between her and Duke of York and stra um, while straddling Duke of York with several salvos. But it was, kind of, like I said, the writing was on the wall for the short horse. Uh, splinters rained on the Duke of York and disabled the fire control radar. And at 1842 hours, Duke of York ceased fire, having fired 52 salvos and scored at least 13 hits, but Scharnhorst was pulling away. Uh, many of these hits had badly damaged the ship's secondary armament and left her open to destroy her attacks, which, knowing that this was likely to have happened on the Scharnhorst, the British Admiral ordered destroyers HMS Scorpion and HNM. HNOMS Stored, which is a Norwegian destroyer, to launch a total of eight torpedoes about 1854 of them hit. They were launched at rather close range. One torpedo exploded on uh, around the B turret and caused it to jam. A second torpedo hit the ship on the port side and caused minor flooding. Third torpedo struck the rear ship, damaged the prope port propeller shaft. Fourth hit the ship in the bow. And the tor uh, torpedo slowed the Sharon horse to just 12 knots, which allowed Duke of York to close to just 9,100 meters, 9.1 kilometers, 10,000 yards, getting closer and closer range. Um, with only sea turret operation, all available men were sent to retrieve ammunition from the four turrets to keep the last heavy guns supplied as long as possible. Uh, Fraser, the, Fraser, the British Admiral, then ordered uh, Jamaica and Belfast to move into range and finish the crippled ship off with their torpedoes. After several more torpedo hits, the Shaw and Horse settled further into the water and began to list the starboard. And at 1945 hours, the ship went down by the bow with her propellers still turning in an attempt to escape. Uh, British then began searching for survivors, but were soon ordered away after just a few were pulled out of the water, even though voices could still be heard in the water calling for help. Of the crew of 1,968 officers and enlisted men, only 36 were pulled from the wreck. Uh, I imagine it was just because it was dark and they didn't want to hit the wreck of the Scharnhorst. But yeah, so that was the British were not known for really pulling survivors out of the water. Uh, same thing with the uh, Bismarck. They only pulled a couple out of the water and then kind of just left the rest to die, which is, yeah... Yeah, that's that's pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, that's the end of the Sharnhorst, unfortunately. Um, fortunately, unfortunately. Um, in reality, it was very fortunate that they were able to take care of the Sharnhorst, but uh, not for the people who sailed aboard it. But yep, so she didn't make it through the war. Uh, Gneisenau now didn't really make it through the war either. She was damaged in Drydock in uh, Germany, and uh, then eventually the Red Army advanced and captured her as she was uh, sunk as a black ship by the Germans. Alrighty, let's get going on this World of Warships section of this episode, which well, I will make brief as this episode is already getting rather long in length.
All right, so here we are with the World of Warships version of this episode. Um, so yeah, Short and Horus definitely been in the game for a really long period of time. Uh, a favorite among people who play German ships, and, and for pretty good reason. It's probably one of the most effective cruiser killers in the game. And so let's go over the armor layout first. So the armor layout, we have a 70 millimeter. Actually, we're going to just go over the notable uh, things about the armor layout. We have a 70 millimeter four-end armor belt, and that, uh, in layman's terms, that's an icebreaker. A 70 millimeter icebreaker that does extend a decent distance above the waterline and is, uh, from long range, you can shoot over it into the citadel, I guess, but it's, you'd still have to get over that and through a 150 millimeter citadel athwartship, although the four end armor plating, the snoot um, that is above the uh, uh, icebreaker, is only 26 millimeters. Uh, your belt extends from the forward turrets, or just before the forward turrets, to after the aft turrets, and it's going to have 350 millimeter belt. Um, there is a little bit of an aft end armor plate too, uh, as well that helps you when you're angled. That is 90 millimeters thick, which is going to definitely help you out. The turrets do have 360 millimeters on their face. Actually, the turrets are basically realistic to real life. Uh, your deck is 50 millimeters thick, which will shatter most HE shells. However, your superstructure is quite large and is only protected with 16 millimeters of plating as is standard for battleships of the tier. So you have a 50 millimeter deck, and then after that you do have a uh, 80 millimeter citadel roof uh, that does have some slight turtle back to it, which is is nice. It's not as extreme as some other ba uh, German battleships, but it does have a a slope which is 105 millimeters thick, um, 110 by the uh, turrets. Turret barbettes have 350 millimeters of armor on them. Um, yeah, and. So yeah, this can be quite hard to get into, especially since there is also other sloping that exists that is uh, part of the deck, and that is 110 millimeters thick, which is a quite significant turtleback slope, and the Citadel does lie entirely under the waterline, so it is a very difficult ship to Citadel. Not not that you can't do that, and not that you can't force it to take large amounts of chunk damage, but it's definitely going to be a hard ship to do damage to. It has 56,300 hit points, which is a little low for Tier 7. 22% torpedo damage reduction, also a little low for Tier 7. Uh, main battery, you got a nice 20-second reload on the guns. Uh, they have a 180-degree turn time of a zippy 25 seconds, a maximum dispersion of a bit of a disappointing... Um, uh, well, maybe not super disappointed. 259 meters at 19.9 kilometers. A little disappointing. Uh, by the way, this is this is stock. This is how you would get it if you bought the ship. Um, the 283 millimeter guns. The high explosive is absolutely anemic at uh, 3200 damage. Although the penetration capacity is pretty good at 71 millimeters, and a 20% chance of causing fire is a little bit anemic, but it does reload every 20 seconds. Initial velocity, 890 meters a second is pretty nice. The armor-piercing shell is also a little anemic, uh, 7,600 damage a piece. Now remember, these are only 283mm guns, so it's not actually too bad, but it is a battleship so with only 9 guns. So it's a little disappointing. You're not going to really get any large salvos with this ship on anything but a cruiser. 890 meters second velocity there. You do have some decent assortments of secondaries. Uh, this is prototypically accurate. Um, you got those four turrets of 155s, and then you have the additional, um, looks like we got six turrets of the 105s. Actually, more than that, excuse me. We have uh, the 105s, seven turrets. Yeah, seven turrets of the 105s. Uh, I mean, by a firing range of 19.9 kilometers. 
Uh, your torpedoes, you've got two by three, two tubes, or uh, two turrets, three tubes each. They've got a six kilometer range, and they do 500, they're 533 millimeters, 7.2 second uh, turn time, reload time of just 68 seconds, but these are primarily defensive torpedoes or dueling torpedoes. They're not really uh, for anything else. This, remember, this is a battleship, not a destroyer. Torpedo speed, 64 knots, 13,700 damage apiece, 1.3 kilometer detection range, but usually they're launched closer than 1.3 kilometers. You do have your standard depth charge airstrike. A defense is not bad on the Sharnhorse for its age. It does hold up quite well, but it is no, make no mistake, this is not an American ship or a Dutch ship or anything like that. It will shoot down a decent amount of planes. You may stop a strike from a tier... Uh, may stop a strike from tier 6 carrier, but uh, you're still going to get have some problems with tier 8 carriers. Um, uh, maneuverability, you got a top speed of 30 knots, turning circle radius 800 meters, and a rudder shift time of 14.5 seconds, which is quite good. Um, for, well, for a battleship, right? It is... It's a weird cruiser cruiser battleship sort of thing. So, um, but 14.5 seconds for a cruiser isn't great, but for a battleship, it's pretty good. The 800 meter turning circle isn't bad. Uh, concealment. You have a 15.2 kilometer concealment. It's not bad. You can get that down to, I believe, well, is it like, I think around 12 kilometers, if I remember correctly, which isn't bad. It's a pretty stealthy ship. It's not, uh, not like British levels of stealthy, but it's definitely good, definitely workable. Uh, the assured detectability range, 2 kilometers. Detectability range by air is 9.9 kilometers, um, as is by submarine. And from firing from smoke, uh, that is 11.7 kilometers. So it's it's not bad. You can definitely use smoke screens with this ship, especially at decent range. Um, yeah. And then as far as your consumables are concerned, you're going to have access to your standard heal, your standard damage control, and you do have a choice between a spotter and a fighter. I highly recommend a spotter because fighters don't do anything. Um, but yeah, so that that is the actual um, ship itself. Now as far as skills to take, you can go with a secondary build. Don't get me wrong, you can do it. I've seen people before. It doesn't work too bad for them. Usually, you can do it. Would I recommend it on the Shorenhorst or Sharnhorst? Um, maybe not. And uh, I know this is against what I usually go with with German battleships. I usually go with a full secondary build. But the Sharnhorst is a weird one because it is a cruiser more than it's a battleship. So I would recommend more of a typical survivability build rather than a build for... Um, combat like traditional like secondary combat efficiency so that means we're going to take preventative maintenance we're going to take our priority target we're going to take uh you could probably take a drill and rush uh basics of survivability would probably be better though uh especially since your reload time is so short anyways and then i would uh i would take emergency repair experts because you don't have a whole lot of hit points but uh so having extra repair that extra heal is going to be nice um, so yeah, and then after you come back around, I would, uh, recommend taking maybe like an emergency repair specialist, uh, vigilance would be a really good one to take, because that's gonna increase your torpedo, uh, protection damage reduction by, uh, 7%, which will get you up to, was it, to 28%, I believe, 
Uh, and then I would take uh, Adrenaline Rush because you can get some pretty insane reload times off that. And then I would take Concealment Expert after that. You could swap Concealment Expert and Emergency Repair Expert and take Concealment Expert first. But I would really stick between those two skills. Those are the skills that I would take with the ship. Now, with any extra points that you have, feel free to use them uh, as you like. I think you could have one extra point, and you could use that for Gun Feeder because you will be switching ammo types a decent bit in this ship. Um... And as far as uh, upgrades are concerned, uh, you should be running just standard uh, main armorist mod 1, uh, damage control system modification 1, or you could do engine room protection, but I recommend damage control. Uh, then you should do main battery, uh, no, actually, aiming systems modification 1, damage control systems modification 2, concealment systems modification 1, uh, and this is a tier 7 ship, so I think that's all the slots you get. Uh, let me let me go check with a tier seven because uh, Wow's FT doesn't work anymore. So actually, no, excuse me. You only get four. So you're gonna do da uh, dam main armorance mod one, damage control mod one. Then you're gonna do uh, you're gonna do uh, aim systems modification one, and then you're gonna do damage control system modification two on this ship, and that will allow you to uh, get a more well balanced build. Uh, as far as the uh, flags go, a uh, typical battleship's gonna be good. Uh, you can go Sierra Mike with the speed. I would definitely go with Juliet Charlie, then I would go with India Yankee, Juliet Yankee Bissell 2, and then I go with Sierra Mike, uh, November Foxtrot, and India Delta. You can also put a ramming flag on there if you'd like. Uh, I wouldn't use any of the secondary things on this ship because the secondaries aren't bad, but they are also tier 7 secondaries, so they're not great. You can get them to be decent. Because uh, they are German secondaries, but they're they're typically not super great. Um, so that's why I don't recommend it. Because this ship, rather than being a secondary brawler, is very, very good at killing cruisers. Now, don't get me wrong. You can use it as a secondary brawler. And it's pretty effective. It holds its own. And it's a playstyle that's certainly valid, and people do it. I don't typically focus on that playstyle as much, just because I don't find it to be... I mean, I find it to be kind of like, if you're going to do that, go get it Gnize Now. Because that's what Gnize Now is for. Gnize doesn't have anything else going for it other than at close range because um, its guns are terribly inaccurate. Versus Sarnhorst has, has a little more going to it. So I would recommend primarily going after cruisers, right? You're not really, like you can duel, like I said, you can duel, but don't. Don't try to. So you're best pushing up with your cruisers and basically pretending that you are a cruiser. And um, the only difference in your playstyle, well, maybe not the only difference, but one of the few differences in your playstyle is that rather than kiting all the time like cruisers do, you're going to take a little longer to kite. Now, I'm not saying overextend, right, because obviously don't do that and use your common sense when you can see the curtains, on, the, the writing on the wall for this flank that's not going to be a pushing flank, then obviously kite. The Sharon Horse is pretty good at kiting. Uh, it does have pretty good firing angles. Uh, not the best in the game, but definitely definitely workable ones. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend... Uh, kiting super quick because then you extend the range a lot and that's not super great for the Sharon horse Sharon horse really does like playing in a mid-range about um about 18 to to about 18 kilometers to about its detection range or maybe a little further in uh yeah actually probably a little further in so about 18 to 10 kilometers is Sharon horse preferred range like i said a lot of people like going a little closer and that is 
where it has to be very situational, right? It, it applies to the situation as to whether you want to go closer or not than 10 kilometers. But generally, rule of thumb is that if you stay 18 to 10 kilometers, you're going to find a decent amount of success. I have seen people engage in farther ranges, especially in operations and things like that, when uh, the uh, situation may... Uh, call for that where you need to launch a spotter plane and get some things that are across the map before you're able to get there with your actual ship um so that's why i recommend running a spotter plane because the situations do come up that you need to fire over long ranges and sharon horse is capable of doing that uh to a pretty effective degree but um I would say that it generally does better at that mid-range, and generally does better engaging cruisers, and you have to remember that these are only 283mm guns. You can't just load the armor-piercing and forget about it, because you will be ineffective, right? If someone is bow into you, you need to load, load the high-explosive. Uh, it is more like German cruiser high-explosive than battleship high-explosive because of the reload time, but it is still not the most effective high-explosive in the game. Uh, but it does get the job done, especially since the amount of damage it does is per shell is higher because, on average, because of the fact that it tends to penetrate more than other high-explosive does with its 70 millimeters of penetration, which is excellent. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I recommend uh, doing with the uh, Sharnarst. It, it's an interesting playstyle. Sometimes it has a bit of an acquired taste, uh, depending on the situation, but generally I find Sharon Horse to be a very versatile ship that is applicable in most situations. I do see a lot of people mistreating Sharon Horse. You have to remember, it is a battleship, but it's not really a battleship, right? It doesn't have the punch of a battleship normally. So you can't rely on having high damage salvos or anything like that, and you have to anticipate taking... Uh, a decent amount of damage in return because the Sharon Horse armor is good, but it's not invincible, right? You're not going to get citadeled pretty much ever, but that doesn't mean you can't take large armor piercing chunk damage. So you do have to keep that in mind when you're using the Sharon Horse. Um, so I typically, in a typical game, I recommend pushing up with your cruisers just outside the caps, kind of seeing what's going on. Uh, typically between like B and C cap or A and C cap, if we're playing uh, domination, I like pushing up to there. Uh, and I see people with the most success doing something like that. And then I uh, kind of want to see the situation, right? It's a very situational ship, right? You want to see the situation. And then um, uh, you will push up depending on how many cruisers there are, how many battleships there are. If there's a lot of battleships there, then I'd recommend not pushing up but if it's just cruisers and destroyers and maybe one or two battleships you may want to push up just a little bit uh maybe poke around the island start angling and start kind of tanking for your team because you can do that but remember it's more of a cruiser so it can't do that a whole lot right it can take damage don't get me wrong don't be afraid to take damage but you there is a hard limit versus uh other battleships that are more forgiving in that department um so yeah you can push up start tanking damage and then uh push forward right but if there's a ton of battleships you want to shy away from engaging them because you're not you don't have the punching power of battleships it's hard to play with the big boys right because if you're playing with the big boys you have to be ready to give and take the big bites and you can't really uh take the big bites or you can't really give them either so you just have to be aware of that that's the one big flaw of the short horse is it does have really small guns but they are really fast reloading. You have those 20-second reloads, so that's nice. Uh, your your DPM's pretty good, and you're deadly to cruisers. Sharn Horse is one of the biggest fears of all light cruisers because it does not over-penetrate. So don't be afraid to use the armor-piercing, but remember you're not going to be effective against 
uh, pretty much any target that's angled. Even light cruisers can bounce these 283s on their belts. Uh, even the bows can, I believe most of the light cruiser bows can bounce the 283s. So you just, ha you have to be careful of that. You have to be mindful of that. Other than that, it kind of plays like a normal heavy cruiser, I would say. is the best playstyle that I can roughly liken it to. It's a little bit more of an aggressive playstyle than a normal heavy cruiser, but you have to remember that you don't have incredibly large um, uh, high caliber uh, armor piercing anymore. Right, it's it's smaller caliber, so that's something that's just to keep in mind. But the Scharnhorst is a really good ship, and if you're interested in it, chances are you're gonna like it. It's really good in operations, uh, from what I've seen. And as far as playing against it's concerned, uh, high explosive. It's it's in that respect, it's a German battleship. Just light it up with high explosive. If you do have its broadside, shoot for the upper belt uh, with armor piercing, and then you can just chunk damage it. You're not going to citadel it, so don't go for the citadel. So even if you're a battleship, just shoot for the upper belt and you'll chunk it uh, enough that it'll cause damage. Do be aware, it does have torpedoes that go out to 6 kilometers, so when it does duel, you can expect torpedoes coming from either side. Yeah, oh, that's right. If you're playing the Scharnhorst, forget you have torpedoes until you really need them, right? Don't don't look to use the torpedoes. Look for a situation where look use the torpedoes when they're needed. Don't look to use the torpedoes. Right? There are many battles, especially in my Pomeran, where I go without using the torpedoes. Many battles in a row, sometimes ten, sometimes more. I never touch the torpedoes. Right? But when I need them, I need them. So that's the thing that you need to remember about German battleships with torpedoes: is they are battleships first, then that have torpedoes. They are not big destroyers. Well, that's going to be about it for this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, I will be doing probably Hipper next, but we'll see how that shakes out. Uh, if you have any other questions or comments or suggestions or anything, feel free to message me on the Anchor app or email me, rankamateurpodcast at gmail.com. I do prefer that second option, but I will see the first thing as well. Um, yes, and until next time, captains...